I'm not saying that your intent, I don't know you individually, I'm not saying that your intent is to ban people of color or black people in particular, but we know that disproportionately the impact of apartment bans of which, you know, we have all, and I, I showed them the maps, you know, they're all, all over LA County, all over Riverside County, whatever county you want to pull out. There are bans on multifamily housing and that has the default effect of, of banning people of color. Now, I'm already, I'm saying this more strongly to you right now than I was saying this last week. Welcome to Yimby Action's conversations on anti-racism and urbanism. Yimby Action is a network of pro-housing activists fighting for more inclusive housing policies, and we drive housing policy to change and increase the supply of housing at all levels and bring down the cost of living in opportunity-rich cities and towns. My name is Laura Foote, and I am proud to serve as Yimby Action's executive director. I am so excited to be here today uh, meeting with such, I mean, Michael Lenz, I've been a fan of for a while. Um, Yimby Action is doing this series of conversations as an exercise to take to heart the message of recent uprisings. And we're hoping to have really thorough and interesting conversations, uh, both about the role of urbanism to change urban policies and policies in suburban communities to make those communities less racist, and also how we can bring that message internally and make the work that we do less racist and anti-racist in purpose and direction. Um, so we're hoping this series can help us explore that concept, that duality, both internal work and external work. Um, we know that we are not going to answer all of the very important questions that we're going to be talking about. We're not going to come to a conclusion here today, but we do hope to have good mix of things that we can do now and bring into the work that we're doing and things uh, that are food for thought to take to this ongoing work that we're going to keep going. Um, so my name is Laura Foote, again, from Yimby Action. Um, we're co-hosting today with Abundant Housing LA. I'm going to turn it over to Roderick uh, to talk a little about that him and that work. Perfect. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, and like you, I've been a big fan of Mike's for like two years. Um, we met when I was in Oregon, and then I think I just purposely latched myself onto him, and there was like no chance for him to have any other option. And so, yeah, I'm the organizing director for Abundant Housing LA, and I actually just moved to California in February, so I'm relatively new, and it's been quite the introduction to California and LA um, with everything that has been going on this year. But I've been really excited for these kind of conversations to take place, especially within like the urbanism and Yimby space because the role um, that Yimbyism has within housing justice, I think is very important. And, you know, I was just talking with one of the interns we have today about how I didn't realize how much urban planning controlled every little aspect of cities. And when you think about trying to be anti-racist or anti-sexist or anti-homophobic or whatever it is, whether it's at an individual level or at the macro level at like a city, with something like urban planning, if you're not bringing that with you in your day-to-day -day life, you're going to create a city that doesn't work for everyone. And that's arguably where we've gotten to, that's how we've gotten to where we're at in American societies in today's current time period. So I'm like really looking forward to this conversation and um, listening to Mike speak about the importance of bringing this lens to the work that we all do. Thank you. Awesome. And um, we'll share in the chat window, Yimby Action and Abundant Housing LA. 
you know, we're both membership driven organizations. So I really encourage people to become a member. So thank you so much for speaking with us, Michael. You've been such a strong voice in both the academic circles and also in, you know, taking, I think, a, a bold statement for an academic, which is sort of, in my eyes, deliberately bringing your work into the public discourse, talking about race and housing for a long time. So I imagine that hasn't been always easy. You know, can you introduce yourself and talk about how you see your work fitting into that? Yeah, so thanks, Laura, and, and thanks, uh, Rod, for, for kicking us off as well. You know, I'm a you know, professor at, at UCLA in, in the Luskin School of Public Affairs, and, you know, I think we all have some kind of responsibility, perhaps, or at least opportunities to engage in policy-driven work um, in addition to, to our kind of day jobs as, as scholars and, and teachers. And so, you know, my research is and has been focused pretty squarely and solely on housing and related issues. You know, I started working on, on issues really focused on housing subsidies, federal housing subsidies, vouchers, and public housing, and issues of neighborhood opportunity and segregation. And I know we'll, we'll talk a fair amount about that. And over the years, I think my work is, has broadened or kind of moved around in, into other spaces, uh, including areas of eviction and homelessness as, as those being very, very you know, big issues in, in Los Angeles, in particular in California more generally over recent years. And then also, you know, some of the kind of very clear bread and butter issues that Yimby Action, you know, works on with issues of zoning and housing supply at all levels and bringing it, you know, more back to this, this kind of intersection of academic and policy work. You know, again, I have a lot of opportunities, I think, to engage with the public. I think that's been incredibly important. And, and those opportunities have obviously kind of mushroomed in the recent uh, few months and weeks. But like, I think it's always a, a, a tension, not so much with worrying about kind of saying or doing the wrong thing in, in the public sphere, but, but more like this tension of having to kind of publish to, to stay alive in, in academia with a lot of the time-consuming work that, that policy and, and political work, you know, involves, which you know much more than I do. Like, that's, that's a whole life um, and whole career. Yeah, it's interesting because some of my family are academics and, and that kind of publisher parish means that there isn't as much room to try to pull your work into the political discourse and like make your work continuously matter. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I do think there are like, there are a few academics like you who I think have actually done an incredible job of making the work that they do this kind of like relevant and publishing in the planning journals you know, it's time to end single family home only zoning, you know, to me, that's a highly political act, yeah. right? That is going and talking about that issue with those people specifically is kind of that like nexus of bringing your work into into the planners who maybe are, are struggling with that. Yeah, yeah I, that's a, a interesting piece, of course, to, to bring up, you know, and, and I, I have to give a lot of credit to to Michael Manville and, and Pablo Mankin and my, my co-authors on that for, um, you know, really uh, Manville in particular leading the charge on kind of getting us to make that kind of statement and really probably half or, or more of the best lines are, are Manville's in, in that piece. Um, you know, I encourage folks to check it out. It's actually open access. Um, we, we paid for that uh, ability for you all to see it. And that's, that's an interesting piece to bring up with this kind of academic policy tension because like 
you know, ultimately that's, that's a piece that, you know, we're probably not going to get a lot of credit for in, in our kind of, in our academic, you know, beam counting of like how many, you know, how far did you, you know, push the um, frontiers of academic knowledge, right? Like we're making more of a, of a, of a policy and planning statement in that kind of article than we are like coming up with some new methodology on analyzing planning or, you know, or, or like doing some kind of applied analysis, right? Like, so, you know, that is, I mean, for all three of us, that's like a post tenure sort of luxury where you can say, okay, well, you know, now let's make a big statement and spend a bunch of time writing something that we're not ultimately going to get like big academic kudos for, you know, some of our colleagues might be like, hey, that's cool. And some of our colleagues are like, that's stupid. <laughs> and that's fine. But like, you know, it's just not like that kind of academic currency. It's more of a policy and planning currency, which, you know, I think we can we can do that. And that's fine. We can juggle that. Um, but that's, you know, that that comes to mind as being a, an important consideration. I mean, you clearly and I, and I imagine a lot of people like the, the academic being counting versus sort of like your work being something that is so so fundamental to what the lived experience of people is right now. I'm curious, like, how did you decide to get into this and, and how did you decide to get into academia uh, as a way of sort of exploring these uh, concepts or, or did you find your way into these concepts after you were already deep into the academia world? Yeah, I, I mean, so certainly some some concepts uh, I've arrived at recently, but, you know, like kind of thinking about my motivations and, and genesis, um, you know, I was a poli-sci major and, and I did a public policy master's fairly early on after undergraduate. So like I've always been policy interested and oriented and, it, you know, it was always, I, I think, you know, without really kind of understanding sometimes at the time, like motivated by trying to understand what public policy can do to reduce poverty overall and reduce the effects of poverty, right? You know, in the United States, poverty attaches you to all of these potential pitfalls and negative outcomes, you know, in health, in where you live, in the schools your kids attend, and so on and so forth. And that's really what motivated me in terms of study. And then I go to NYU, I start working with Ingrid Allen and Kathy O'Regan, who are great housing scholars on the East Coast. And, oh, wow, like there's this whole housing policy regime that I haven't really studied all that much yet that is not nearly big enough. It's not nearly generous enough. But for the people who receive housing subsidies, like that has a big footprint in their financial picture, right? And and then, it you know, it pulls in my interests in segregation and it pulls in just my interests in like cities and my kind of urbanist geek. And so, you know, since then, like housing has been like the most obvious thing I can, I can be interested in. Like I said, I was more kind of oriented towards federal housing subsidies early on in my career. And, you know, some of these effects of planning, you know, that, that Rod started talking about, you know, are things that have, that have eventually kind of picked up, right? Where like, oh, it's not just it's not just about like housing subsidies, you know, there's this whole other set of rules that, you know, govern where people can live, right? Yeah, once you start pulling at the thread, it's like, I, I, I hear that a lot from a lot of different people about how, you know, you start with, okay, we have to 
you know, right historic wrongs and shrink the racial wealth gap. And there's this like, you know, inevitable, then you get to zoning. And, and there's a lot of steps in between that. But mm. like, you, you cannot think about shrinking, shrinking the racial wealth gap without eventually getting to zoning and the history of segregation. You can't think about the generational wealth gap without eventually getting to racism and housing. And, and it's like, there's this, I don't know, it's like a black hole, I feel like, that just like pulls you into this sort of cluster of housing shortage and housing segregation policies. Yeah, that, yeah that's a long... You know, there's a lot, there's a lot packed in there, right? But that's, that's essential that people understand that when they want to kind of, when they really want to attack housing, housing problems and segregation. I mean, I imagine at this point, and you you made reference to this, that sort of your role is, and how you see yourself, obviously, like has this huge impact in what you bring to the table in academia and in policy and, and how you're seeing the influence of your work play out. And at this bridge of sort of politics and academia, I see you as one of these people who's sort of bringing information back from one community to the other community. Um, but I don't know if I'm just projecting that onto you. I mean, it seems like something that is really, we don't want the ivory tower to be sort of detached from this live political discourse of like what actually is happening. It, ideally, particularly for people who are doing policy research, like it's almost, it's this kind of iterative process or it's almost like this revolving door, right? Where you're learning from people in the community about like what the key questions are and then you're studying that and then you're writing about it and then you're like disseminating it and like working with people to implement that stuff. But like that ideal almost is very rare and it's not very well supported by universities, you know, and, and I, there's a there's an active fight, I think, within universities uh, about like how you incentivize that where it's not, you know, I mean, my model is more like is more frequently you know, I'm, I have these kind of interest, I had these questions that interest me or that like students have been talking about or like I had a conversation maybe with somebody in the community and then like it turns into a research project, but then it takes me like two or three years to do it and then like the world has moved on or, you know. So, I mean, that ideal, again, is not very well supported by universities in that there's just not enough time for one person to like teach four classes to publish in the right journals to like keep them afloat and kind of respected amongst their peers. But, you know, I I think the longer I've been, you know, at at UCLA and in academia, I've found hopefully better ways to do that. It's definitely dependent on having like good colleagues around you and good kind of institutional support around you where like you don't always, you don't have to be one person on an island doing all of those things. Like you can be collaborating with people who have more of a community connection or they have more of a policy connection or policy knowledge. And then like you can bring the academic research part of it in kind of a team approach. Yeah, I mean, I guess pulling that to the, like a specific, right? So like your role in uh, talking with the Southern California Association of Governments about how they're going to implement their big housing goals handed down to them from the state. You know, you told me a 
funny story. So I'm going to let you tell it earlier about sort of how that conversation goes. Um, But, you know, you're being consulted as an expert to tell them how to implement housing policies that maybe will have less segregationist effects and, and less stop impoverishing people. How does that go? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you asked me, like, this is this, you know, to kind of bring it to specific things. Like this is the stuff that's a little bit easier, right? Where you become somewhat expert in like most aspects of of housing. You know, I don't know everything, but I have some decent knowledge from my research and other people that I've learned from. And like, you can share that with policymakers who hopefully can will listen and take that and do something with it, right? And so, you know, talking last week with, with the Southern California Association of Government, SCAG, you know, this is an entity that is has already kicked out my colleague from <laughs> Pavo from like, you know, uh, in, engaging more deeply with the regional housing needs assessment work that he's been doing with them for, for a couple of years. Because, you know, we're, we're bringing a message to them that they don't necessarily want to hear. And my version of that message last week, I think was, I think I had softened the edges, right? What, what I am saying is, if you ban apartments, you are at least banning some people of color. Not all people of color live in, in apartments, but they're, they disproportionately do. I'm not saying that your intent, I don't know you individually, I'm not saying that your intent is to ban people of color or black people in particular, but we know that disproportionately the impact of apartment bans of which you know, we have all, and I, I showed them the maps, you know, they're all, all over LA County, all over Riverside County, whatever county you want to pull out. There are bans on multifamily housing, and that has the default effect of, of banning people of color. Now, I'm already, I'm saying this more strongly to you right now than I was saying this last week, because I know my audience sometimes. But even then, you know, the, the responses, I think, by and large, the people who spoke up were very were supportive and receptive of that message. But you have several people amongst that group that are very opposed and have very little patience for, you know, connecting race and housing at all. I mean, what can you? You know, I mean, I think this is the thing, like, to deny the connection between race and housing in America is to be delusional about the history of America, of America, of American housing policy, of every aspect of how we became the country that we are, and to deny also yourself the ability to build a future where we could potentially move past that to a better future. I don't know. This is the thing. It's like there is no path towards racial justice that doesn't involve housing justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a housing person, and uh, and so I'm I'm biased to that message. But it's I think it's very very clear. You know, how do you walk outside in your neighborhood and only see white people? You know, if you're a city councilman in a per- particular place, right? How do you walk outside and only see white people and not connect race and housing? I, I'm not I'm not really sure. You know, I was sort of laughing about this earlier that. I got into a little bit of a t- 
Tizzy with uh, Zelda Bronstein, who mm -hmm. writes for 48 Hills one time. And, you know, my message to her was, you know, the policies you're advocating for have racist results. And she said, are you calling me a racist? And I said, the policies you advocate for have racist results. And are you calling me a racist? And mm -hmm. there are three core reasons, I think, that often people come into the MB perspective. There are economic reasons. So people who are like, oh, there are a lot of jobs and there are not enough housing. This is a drag on the economy. This is a drag on our workforce. You know, to some degree, there's like, is this reinforcing poverty arguments? There's that sort of cluster of economic. Then there's the environmental arguments that like we're pushing people further out and that's driving up carbon emissions. And then there's a real like social justice and racial justice motivation for people coming in. And, you know, to your point about softening, I worry that like, you know, pre-Black Lives Matter, I w and especially when we go into the suburbs and we're talking to like purple or even red districts or places that are like blue, but we know they don't really want to integrate their schools. Like, do we talk about race in those communities? Right. And like, how many times have I softened that message? Because I was like, you know, these people will be more open to hearing an environmental message. And I hope that like one thing that I'm really taking in from the Black Lives Matter movement is that like whether they're ready or not for that conversation, we have to have it. And, and we have to like really be firm about how these policies have disproportionately negative impacts on people of color and white people have to be able to have that conversation without shouting back are you calling me a racist and like that we just have to keep doing it until people can handle it a little bit better that's not really a question i just sort of rambled for a bit no but but i want to i want to react to that a little bit because i guess like you know at this point where when everybody has made some kind of statement in support of black lives matter or some some statement you know against the brutal killing of george floyd etc 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 like these these words that pe that people you know sign on to or or display you i think you have to take a a strong subset of those people are also saying what can i do what what can i read you know how can i help like i this is terrible i hate this and i and i feel i feel sadness about the state of black america and 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 brutality and things like that like you have to take people at their word and you know sometimes the if you're a city council person in a very segregated place or a place that, you know, is 90% single family housing. Or if you're a, a parent who whose child goes to a, a virtually all white or all white and Asian school, the answer is, is right in front of you. Like you need to push for integration of your community by all means. And so again, like if people are asking for like, what can I do about this terrible thing? Sometimes what they're most positioned to do. And that, that was my argument to, to the people of, at Skag is like, you know, you want to make this big statement about racial justice. Okay. Let's integrate. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's 2020. <laughs> Yeah, I think I was at a, a a small community meeting, right, in a in a part of San Francisco that was, um, you know, largely single family homes, and they're contemplating a large project uh, being built that's going to be fifty percent affordable. So, and fifty percent affordable up to like relatively high middle income, right? Because we're now subsidizing middle income, right? right. So it's like fifty percent of 
affordable, you know, so it's probably 25% super low income, 25% relatively middle income, and then, you know, 50% high, whatever. It's going to be a great new community, and they're freaking out, of course. And this guy, he's muttered something, and I said, well, doesn't it bother you that your community is segregated? And he said, we're not segregated. Anybody could live here. And I said, <laughs> I said well, you know, anyone with money, like, <laughs> and he said, well, I was like, you know, you're, you're, you're discriminating based on income. And he's like, well, that's fine. You know, <laughs> and I was like, I wonder if like later he's going to think about that or like, is, you know, I don't, you know, you can't move everybody, but I do think that like there is a level of comfort with segregating by income. Right. I mean, you have to have seen that kind of reaction a lot, you know, do, do, doing the Lord's work of hanging out at community meetings. Like you, have to, you have to have seen that reaction. I'm, I've seen that in the comments, you know, enough to know that like a lot of people are like, hey, I worked really hard to like, you know, earn this plot of land. And if you can't afford it, or if your parents didn't bequeath it to you, like, go away, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I do think when we're going into whiter communities making that argument, like, I hope that to some degree, and this is a thing I'm thinking about a lot in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, like, how do we weaponize our whiteness in order to have a conversation about integrating white communities and getting access to the opportunities there? I mean, and your papers on sort of the, like, opportunity gap is like really something that's like, there's that like strong, as an activist, it's very powerful for me to feel like, okay, we have this strong academic backing. We know that by blocking housing in these high opportunity neighborhoods, we are blocking people from having access to the opportunities that are neighborhood specific. I've got a white paper in my back pocket. I could show you if you really want to see it. And that is something that then makes me feel like, okay, like I can go say like, you know, why do you want to segregate your communities? Explain that to the next generation down who, who is calling you on, you taught us that racism is bad. You didn't teach us that you were a little racist, but you did teach us that racism was bad. So mm-hmm. how are we going to live that value? And you know, that's something that I think like we can do with a lot of moral authority having the conversation in communities that are struggling with displacement is something that I think the Yimby movement has always struggled with. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on the opportunity side, you also have like, you also have like the American myth, right. Where like everybody's from a level on a level playing field. Right. And so like, if you show them like, you know, I mean, like your kid goes to a great school and that kid across town just by the lottery of birth goes to a terrible school and like compound that with their family income, you know, the, the income gap, like blah, blah, blah. That's not a level playing field. Right. And so that, that, that opportunity concept, I think works certainly with this American myth of like everybody starting from the same place. Right. And having this. I want to interrupt you. What are your favorite two towns that are right next to each other that are incorporated in order for one town to keep the other people out. My favorite is Palo Alto and East Palo Alto. Oh man. Wow. I'm not sure I have one down here. Atherton. Yeah. Atherton's pretty. Yeah. Atherton's a good one. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'd have to think about that. What is the most obviously exclusionary place? You could have an annual like exclusionary award. (laughs) Which town was incorporated to keep which people out? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the list, suburbs of LA, their yeah. entire purpose is to not be part of the LA school district. Yeah. Like La, La Cañada, Flintridge probably is a, is a good one way out in the, in the east. But so you, you talked about the displacement side of this, right, in, in uh, communities of color or, you know, not, right? Like, you know, that's, of course, I think that's been the biggest tension. And at least we, from my kind of academic standpoint, it seems to be the biggest tension between like, you know, two groups of very, very well-meaning people who want more housing, right? Like the Yimbies want more housing of all types. And then there are, whether it's tenants organizations or equity groups or even, you know, transit advocate organizations who want very, very specific housing, right? They want housing that their, you know, constituents and their families can afford, right? And so I think there's a scramble in academia to, if you build market rate housing, like will what effects will that have on these big displacement and gentrification problems, right? Or like, do you need to, if you really want to address the housing needs of low-income families and communities, like, does it have to be income restricted? Does it have to be like, like very, very heavily subsidized? And I mean, like, to me, the, the easy answer kind of economically or policy-wise, you know, sending politics aside is like, you just build a ton of housing in high opportunity places, right? You unlock like this big potential for like hot, high opportunity places to house more people. And eventually like some of that, right away, that housing is not going to necessarily be affordable to low-income people, but like that's going to relieve pressures on the housing markets where those displacement concerns exist, right? But <laughs> there's like this huge problem in which we can't convince, you know, the uh, the high opportunity places to absorb that in the first place. And that's why we're here, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, so I completely agree with that. I mean, that's, that's the road I'm on, right? Like, that's what I think, right? I think like the Yimby movement, you know, early days, the worst mistakes we ever made were saying, okay, there's a big housing project being proposed, we need housing, and being indifferent to where that was located and the systemic injustices that were happening behind that. And I have tons of, I mean, I've talked about that over and over again, I could talk about it here again. And I think that like, that's something that I think like the Yimby movement has truly absorbed and like really is like, how do we bring this fight to exclusionary communities in the suburbs is like that like guiding light, I think right now. And one thing that's like really hard that I think we have not yet figured out is that there is a tension that this idea of like community-based planning and community control has a lot of emotional power in low-income communities that have been disinvested in. And it is very hard to say, okay, but if you give Beverly Hills community control, they will never let anyone else in. Yeah. And so how do we create rules that like empower, and then you're in this, like, how do we make the math say like, we're going to empower the right people, not the wrong people, yeah. right? That's, you know, that's a, that's a lot to unpack, right? Yeah. And like, how do you have, and this is why I think like this, like, how do we do planning at the right levels so that you get the right is of course, housing politics, it's always really complicated. But I do think that there's a lot more wrestling that we need to do with this kind of natural tension that maybe can be solved through really creative policymaking of how do we integrate the exclusionary places and give enough community control to low-income communities that 
as we're taking pressure off of them by massively upzoning the wealthiest, frankly, where the market is telling you to build the most, right? Like that's like the high income, high opportunity, high cost places. The market is also saying build here. How do we then also not, you know, like this local control is this dangerous animal in politics. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for years, and I'm sure you've been, saying the same thing is like so if Beverly Hills local control is really right here and like Boyle Heights local control is really right here because that's the current power imbalance right they on paper they might have the same ability to you know organize and and talk to the planning department but like the the power gap is here but can we do this right or you know do you have to do this you know to to like how do you get to the point where low-income communities of color have the same potential to control their own destinies as, as Beverly Hills. I mean, and a lot of that has to do with, like, property ownership. Like, white people have to lose some control. Yeah, yeah. And ideally, that's that's what that's where I would go, um, you know, and but it's it's hard to get there. The last thing I would say about that is, like, you, I think you saw some attempts through SB50 and, like, some of the analytic work around that to like try to see if we could do that with data right where like okay how do we map the community of concern exactly like we can upzone along if you're within a you know certain distance of a transit stop and certain distance of jobs but if you have this like mix of you know potential displacement problems you're exempt right and i was involved in some of the the kind of consultation on on the data there and it was hard, you know, like every way that that was the data were cooked, like you could point to a place on the map and be like, are you kidding me? Like that is not a sensitive community at all. Like how did this happen? You know? So, you know, even as a quantitative researcher, I gotta, I gotta admit sometimes the data will not set you free. Oh, man. Um, Well, so we've talked a lot about the data and academic. I mean, I also want to like give space like this is personal. And like, I'm wondering how much you feel like your personal story has sort of come into your work and, Mm. and, and how you see yourself sort of interacting with this cross section. You know, are you a homeowner, right? These are like, I'm a renter, so I'm holy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, that looks like a house. I, that's what I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm doing okay now. I mean, <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah you, I'm sure, your personal story is is something that I, you can't help but bring into your work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I come to to interests of of racial segregation as, as of course, you know, being a black man who you know I grew up in St. Paul and. I ended up going to like suburban schools. So like, I feel like I lived in in a fairly mixed world growing up, but then like my schools were very, were very white. And then my mom and I lived on, you know, on section eight vouchers for, for quite a while. So like, certainly like it became really powerful to me to be somebody who I think is kind of an exception doing research on vouchers who was once themselves like a recipient. Like that's, that's not, I don't think the typical background of a, of a housing academic thinking about like our national conversation on policing. Like I've had a very, my life has changed dramatically. Like you said, like, looks like I'm, I'm in a house. This is just my office. Like, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot more square footage than, than my office is right now, you know? And, we live good here on the on the west side of Los Angeles, even though 
coronavirus sucks. And I grew up in communities that were over-policed, but I now live in a community that is, there's like no police at all, right? And it's great. We don't need them. And it's wonderful not to hear sirens, you know? So like my trajectory, you know, I think makes it important for me to always remember like why I started doing this work. And it was because, again, I wanted to figure out how we can have less poverty and and to help people in poverty just by virtue of what I saw when I grew up. And, you know, now I I don't see it in my backyard anymore, but like, you got to remember it. I think that's so powerful to like be a recipient recipient of section eight and then to be able to see see it on that macro level too. Like you, you get that sort of micro and macro of your personal and bringing in your work. I just think that's really powerful. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Roderick to manage the Q and a, but thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, and you're going to share more. I shouldn't thank you too much. (laughs) I can't leave. (laughs) Yes, I am back. It's thank you, Mike, for sharing your story and your perspective for all of this. And I'm really excited to dig into the questions. And so I was like reading through them, you know, we have 21 submitted, but I feel like the ones that my eyes have caught most, maybe because I'm also biased to wanting to talk about this, but I have seen a lot of people bring up conversations around single family, you know, home ownership, right? There are are a few questions in here about home ownership. Um, So I'm just gonna try and like summarize what I think all these questions are really getting at, it comes down to the fact that we live in a nation where home ownership is the primary means of building wealth. And now we're confronted with home ownership, what people maybe didn't know centuries ago, or not even centuries, but decades ago when they first started this, is there would never be enough land to, you know, to have everyone own a single family home or even the fact that we're now wrestling with a lot of other issues outside of just wealth building as it relates to home ownership of single family homes like the environment and sprawl and things like that. So a lot of people have asked questions around where do you fall, Mike, on expanding home ownership and accelerating home ownership for opportunities for people of color, specifically African Americans. And another piece to that is how do we rethink, begin to rethink what home ownership looks like in this country as it relates to wealth building? Yeah, so it's really tricky. But I think right now, like in most parts of where the three of us live, right, like Southern California, Northern California, like the prospects for home ownership are terrible. Right. And it and it's because the cost of housing is, is so high. And, you know, I think that has to do, of course, with the scarcity of homeownership opportunities generally, of course. And I think that thinking about homeownership as like a wealth building vehicle, there's some downsides to that, certainly. Like, I think we should look at homes as shelters first and foremost. And we may be past the point in a lot of places where like, a home is a, is like the best vehicle to build wealth. But if we're going to at least keep that alive as an option for more people, and especially for black, black families, other families of color, like we have to stabilize home prices, right? And, and that has a lot to do with building more in, and building more in particular places. And I guess like, you know, I own a single family home and I'm lucky in many ways, including, you know, having that kind of asset. But like, I don't think there's anything about home ownership that has to be 
tied to a single family home, right? We can build lots and lots of duplexes and, you know, fourplexes and townhomes and condos. And that wealth building prospect is not much different um, than if you are buying a single family home. For some people, that's going to be their dream. That's what they want. Okay. And, you know, you can't change those preferences overnight. I just want to add, I think that this, like, there's a lot of rhetoric around, like, housing shouldn't be an investment. And, like, I, it's like, on one level, I, like, I totally agree with that. But, like, what does that really mean in practice? It's like, okay, so, like, yes, I want to, like, in the long term, I want to, like, I don't know what disrupting capitalism is going to look like of, like, the next iteration. But, like, sure, I'm, I'm down for that. But in the short term, I think that, like, housing not being an investment means that it has to go back to being something more like a savings account. And the sort of beginning of the road that we went down of home ownership as wealth generating, especially for white families, was this idea of housing of a home or an, or a condo now as a savings account. It just can't outperform every other investment. You know, that like housing is outperforming the stock market regularly, right? And like that's where you get these like horrific other effects and then you pile on all these other things that we've done of like not taxing it like an, an investment portfolio you know instead we're taxing it as if it's something very virtuous you're doing and so that's where like how do we sort of scale all of those policies back to say like housing should be a savings account and that should be enough i think to sort of take some of the unearned wealth that has accumulated to people who already owned homes, primarily white families, and also still leave a really big open door for people of color to continue the important tradition, I, I think in the short term, of housing as stabilizing family wealth. To add one one small, one short yeah. thing, like particularly given the, the topic of our, our conversation is like, if you look at the last 70 years of, of, of wealth building, like home ownership gap and the gap in opportunities is one of the, one of the best arguments we have for, for reparations, to be, to be honest, right? I mean, like when people bring up reparations, someone always wants to say like, I, my family emigrated here in the 20s. I didn't own any slaves. Like, what did I do? You know, but like, well, you know, like it, it was only like a generation ago that, you know, white wealth was skyrocketing because of the homeownership opportunities they had and black wealth was going nowhere. So, you know, that's another piece. Perfect. Thank you both so much for answering that consolidated question. Another question we had was from Casey, who asked, would you say that housing policies that favor single family housing um, are racist and those that favor multifamily housing are anti-racist? Hmm. How did you put it, Laura? The, the policies you're advocating have a, a racial... Uh, have a racist result. Racist result. Yes. <laughs> that, that's the answer, right? <laughs> I'm saying you're racist. I'm just saying that they have racist results and then you get to decide what you do with that information. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, I mean, to put it, you know, slightly different way, right, is that we just talked about the home ownership gap. Black renter rates are, you know, depending on the metropolitan area, somewhere around, you know, 10 to 20 percent 
uh, higher. Their home ownership rates are 10 to 20% lower than, than white home ownership rates. You know, that's not exactly the same as single family and multifamily, but it's similar, right? And so black and other uh, families of color are more likely to live in multifamily housing. And so when you ban multifamily housing, you're more likely to ban people of color. And it gets back to these wealth inequalities that, that we were just talking about. I'll answer Casey with yes. <laughs> <laughs> the academic goes on and on and caveats and numbers and the answer is yes. Um, so because of the numbers, there was another question I wanted to ask before um, I transition less about home ownership and more about some other different urban planning questions. But um, Ernest asks, you know, since you're academic and you like talking about data, is the aspiration to home ownership by black people and, you know, in general, other people of color well justified by the data you've seen? I would love to see the black home ownership rate increase. Yes. I mean, if, you know, I would like to, to see the black white home ownership gap to be zero with the caveat that like black households have been more subject to predatory lending practices and other bad outcomes from home ownership than white ones have, right? So like if the black and white home ownership rate becomes equal tomorrow um, or in 10 years, like how that happened matters, right? Like where black households bought matters, what their income to, to mortgage ratio was at the time matters, right? And so anyone really interested in this topic should check out Andre Perry's new book, forget the name of it, uh, and more on the history, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor's uh, recent book, Race for Profit, is it? So these are both you know, books very centered on, on these issues of black home ownership. And like the fundamental problem that Andre Perry is interrogating is like this issue that like black spaces are devalued in this country, right? Like if you're a black homeowner, you're more likely to buy it, be able to buy in a black place and maybe you have preferences to buy in a black place. And these are devalued places, right? And like the likelihood that you're going to see like some great return on that investment might be lower, not necessarily, but might be lower than other places. And so that's some of the complications there. Perfect. Also, just to continue plugging Andre, I don't know him personally, but if you don't want to read the book, there's also a Brookings Institute report that talks about this. That's a little bit quicker to read um, about the devaluation of black homes and neighborhoods. Um, I read the book through a podcast. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a professor, but we don't read all the time. We just we, we say we do. Eden had a, a question that I thought people have been really talking about a lot, which is how do we integrate while also making sure to protect those who are moving into these communities from racist backlash? And how do we get higher paying or respect jobs for those who may be on the lower income bracket moving into these neighborhoods, these neighborhoods being obviously wealthier, wider exclusionary areas? Woo! Integration, right? So if we're talking about integration as being like on the backs of moves by people of color into you know majority white spaces absolutely there's a there's a long history of discrimination and and you know negative outcomes for people who make those moves i don't have the answer as to like how to craft a different set of outcomes or society there and, and i mean i would i would say that like we shouldn't always think of, of integration as something that is the responsibility of black and brown movers, right? Like 
we, we shouldn't only be thinking about like, let's, you know, facilitate moves of black and brown households and families to like whiter spaces. You know, that's one pathway and that's like an intent of some of some aspects of our voucher policies out there. But that's that shouldn't be the burden to, you know, the burden of integration shouldn't be on, on people of color. I mean, I'm going to kind of punt on the on the jobs question. That's just that's that's hard. I guess I, I guess I do see this one a little differently. I think that it is immoral to deny the opportunity to go do something that will be hard, right? Like, as your research says, there is a huge amount of opportunity being locked up in these wider exclusionary communities. And like, it is immoral of us to perpetuate denying access to those opportunities. Mm-hmm. It is also true that the people who take advantage of those opportunities will be facing unique challenges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, how do we, this is the sort of like society thing, like it's Rosa Parks, right? It's like, it's literally somebody deciding to put themselves in the face of what may be a literally a hateful community and take opportunities that they will not be denied. And how do we, in, in an individual moment, you know, how do we sort of change all of society around them so that that's easier? How do we change policing so that they aren't murdered? How do we change all of these other aspects of society to make deciding to go after that opportunity a less violent and less dangerous and less emotionally burdensome activity? But it's also true that like protecting them from going and grabbing that opportunity cannot be the right choice either. Yeah, yeah. And it's also true that like continuing to stay segregated means that we're just putting off that difficult moment, another generation. We have to get, you know, the only way out is through. And so like that, I think that's what I think about that. I'm going to make it a fun last question for sure. And this is from an anonymous source. And they asked about the NB action, but I'm just going to make it more broadly about the NB movement and urbanism in general. How has um, the NB movement and urbanism engaged in repair work with the low-income communities of color who YIMBYs have caused harm to during the first few years of advocacy? And then it's in parentheses that you referenced, you know, regarding YIMBYs supporting new developments without consulting and partnering with Black, Indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, local residents. So just to, that was a lot. So just to go back, which is just how has this movement engaged in repair work with low-income communities of color, given the uh, perception of the YIMBY movement? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the continuation of that work, right? I think, like, this is one of the ways in which we want to not just this, obviously. Um, I think that hearing and incorporating into policies, and I think, Michael, you know, you talked about how do we work into bills like SB 50, you know, sufficient hearing that there needs to be carve-outs and we need to treat communities that have been disinvested in differently. I think that was a very valid critique, and we're trying to, like, incorporate that more and more thoroughly into every policy we're proposing. I think we're trying to, you know, meet with and engage with everyone we can, incorporate strong tenants protections into the bills while understanding that, like, we may be trying to educate ourselves on those, why we have and need those strong tenant protections and why they've been built the way they've been built and how to incorporate them into new bills. I think there's, like, technical things that we're doing to incorporate it into legislation. I think there's interpersonal building, those interpersonal relationships. And I, and I think we're making progress. I don't know, Michael, what do you think? 
I have no idea. You know, I mean, I, I'm very hopeful. Rod and I are, are trying to do our little part down in LA, Rod more than me, but I'm, I'm the person that's just kind of sitting back and, and watching and hoping. And <laughs> occasionally I, I hang out with y'all and, and see what's, what's changed or what's getting better. Mark, you want to add? I think you also will have a good answer to this one too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I think in short, something I've talked about since being here and being in this movement and learning a lot is it is a lot of like perceptions and different people are perceived differently and different people have the ability to make amends with certain communities based on a lot of different factors, not even just race, because I'm not a native Tele, so there's still a lot of like a certain respect that I have to also gain from people as an outsider, regardless if those people look like me or not. But I think one of the things that people can really do, which I just think is so simple and people, you know, Mike mentioned how people are always like what can I do what can I do it is just really easy to go and figure out who's who in these low-income communities of color in particular and really sit and listen with them and talk to them and like for me I just like the concept of breaking bread due to being raised in a Christian household but you know I think like it's really that simple not to like oversimplify it but for me it has always just been like I've reached out to people you may not always get a yes right away you may not even get a response right away but I think especially when it comes to race um, and white people, there's this tendency to give up rather quickly. And unfortunately, like, it is something you just have to tough out for the long run. And like Mike said, that burden of toughing out for the long run should not just be placed on black and brown people, but we all have to accept that this is something we're all going to have to buckle up for because we're in it for the long haul. To your sort of breaking bread, my proudest moment, I think, was when someone made fun of me for always offering to go get coffee. And I was like, yes, okay. Like, if that's if that's the meanest thing you can say about me is that I'm always offering to go get coffee and listen, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the um, work. <laughs> and also, I, I, you know, I'm going to put my email address in here, uh, laura at yimbyaction.org. I think, you know, if, if, I don't know who the person was asking this question, but if, anybody here has things they think we should be doing. Um, you know, we want things to come out of these conversations about what we should be doing next because we know that the work is not done. And so I'm going to end it there. I want to thank you, Michael, for sharing their insights with us. Um, this was such a great conversation. Thank you, Roderick. Such a pleasure with both of you. Thank you for everybody for attending. Um, this will be up on YouTube. And teaser, we may be getting Andre Perry on one of these upcoming. So FYI. So with that, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. All right. Great to see you both. Bye. Thanks, everyone. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. I want to emphasize that this is a hard time for nonprofits. Yimby Action is continuing to advocate for the policy solutions we need, whether that's emergency funding for housing for those who need it most, or a pro-housing legislative package that will steer us towards an equitable recovery. We're producing great events, important discussions, and helping local advocates push policies of inclusion and housing for all. And if you believe this work is important and valuable, I want to really urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.